welcome to Uncommons. It's a podcast focused on Canadian politics. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. I also happen to be the Member of Parliament for Beaches East York. And for our second episode today, this is March 25th, I should note. Uh, for our, our second episode, we're focused on this idea, a really important idea of basic income. And we're joined by Evelyn Ferge. She's a health economist and professor at the University of Manitoba. She's also the author of Basic Income for Canadians, the key to a healthier, happier, more secure life for all. I certainly consider her to be the foremost expert on basic income in Canada. So thank you for joining me today, Evelyn. I'm delighted to be here. Great. So with respect to the current crisis that the world faces, we have heard renewed and vocal calls for a consideration of a basic income. We've seen CEOs from Alberta call for cash benefits, Move, moving into a means-tested basic income benefit into the future. We've seen the leader of the NDP uh, on Twitter call for a universal basic income. I just spoke to uh, one of the founders of Universal Basic Income Works, an organization dedicated to advance this idea. And uh, Floyd told me that over 26,000 Canadians have called on the government through a petition to uh, to adopt and, and implement a basic income. So obviously, as Canadians overwhelmingly realize the need for a strong social safety net. There is a, a reconsideration in very serious ways of, of a basic income. But I want to start this conversation a little bit earlier than this pandemic. I, I want to start this conversation and place this conversation in the 1970s, because in the 1970s, there was a minimum income experiment under Trudeau Sr. And I became aware of your work because of the research that you did in relation to that pilot project. And I think it's really important for Canadians to understand that research and to understand the success of that pilot project decades ago. So, I mean, how did you come to discover the pilot project in, in Dauphin, Manitoba? And, and what were your findings? Well, it, it's interesting. The 1970s, there was a there was an interest in, in basic income really all across North America. There were five, what at the time were called negative income tax experiments that were run across North America. There were four in the U.S. and MINCOM was the Canadian version of the negative income tax experiment because we decided we needed our own data to know how it worked in our own political and social context. Um, that project delivered money to families in Manitoba between 1975 and 1978. There were two key sites for the project, one in an urban setting in Winnipeg and one in the small town of Dauphin, Manitoba. It's a town of about 10,000 people. In um, Winnipeg, the project ran very much the same way that all the experiments in the U.S. ran. That is, it was set up as a randomized controlled trial which meant that the researchers came to town, they took a small portion of the total population and divided them into two groups, the subjects who would receive the income stipend and the control group who would make do with whatever programs that they qualified for. And the idea was that at the end of the project, you'd be able to compare the results for the two groups and find out what the impact of a basic income was. Um, the town of Dauphin ran a little bit differently. It was the only site in any of those five experiments that was a saturation site. And a saturation site means that the researchers went to the town of Dauphin, they put ads on the radio, they took out ads in the newspaper, and they invited everybody in town to participate in the experiment. Now, because of the way it was set up, it doesn't mean that everybody received the money. You, it was a targeted program, so that the amount of money they received depended both on the size of their family and how much they were earning in the labor market. 
So if they received no money from any other source, they'd receive the full stipend. And right. as they're, if they were working and, and received a wage, the stipend would be reduced, but it would be reduced less than proportionately. So it worked very much like the Canada Child Benefit. Full stipend for the lowest income people, which gradually tailed out as income increased. Um, the purpose of all of these five experiments in North America was to answer one simple question. If you give people a basic income, do they reduce the amount that they work? Um, do they? Well, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't. They did. They really didn't in any of the projects. And certainly for adults who have real jobs, there was very little reaction at all. But in Manitoba, there were two groups of people who did have a larger reaction. Um, and uh, it, the results are kind of interesting. The first group were new mothers. Um, and if you think back to the 1970s, um, maternity leave at the time was about four weeks. And it turns out that a lot of new mothers That's thought wild, that was a rather, <laughs> a rather miserly uh, parental leave. And so not surprisingly, some of them decided to use the income stipend to buy themselves longer parental leaves. No so in a sense, they, um, they anticipated the changes in social policy that we've introduced subsequently because we know from all kinds of evidence that it's better for families and better for babies for parents to spend a little bit more time with newborns. Of the, the other group of uh, people who reduced the amount of uh, the amount that they worked is uh, particularly interesting because it seemed to um, it seemed to be consistent with a lot of stereotypes, and these were and the language is important young unattached males that is uh, <laughs> young men without families um, people who were living by themselves. And um, they reduced the amount they worked quite substantially. And so a number of people concluded that, well, yeah, you can't give people a basic income. You know, people stop working. Why would anybody right. work if you give them basic income? Well, the project ended and um, the researchers had really run out of money to, um, to do very much analysis on the data. So it was archived for a number of years. And in the meantime, I moved to Winnipeg and I got a job um, working as a health economist. And when you're a health economist in Canada, people only ever ask you one question in a whole lot of different ways. And that is, where are we going to get money to pay for this program? And one of the things that, um, that I think becomes very clear very quickly is that when you walk through an emergency department or walk through a hospital, you realize that a lot of our healthcare dollars are going to treat the consequences of poverty. Exactly. A lot of rely on the healthcare system. Um, We've only recently, up. I think, usefully started discussing the social determinants of health and That's preventative right. health care. That's right. And and we know that almost any health condition is made worse by poverty. It's made worse by um, deprivation. And I remembered this old project that had taken place many years ago. And it took me a little while to track down the data. Um, nobody had paid very so much you, attention. So you, you find a basement and you open the boxes and well, I found a you, warehouse. you dig in? That <laughs> was uh, quite a dramatic warehouse because it was full of 1,800, uh, 1800 cardboard banker's boxes full Holy of data. Shit. Yeah, paper data. Um, you know, there were key punch cards, um, which I had to explain to my graduate students what they were. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> you know, mimeographed survey instruments and all kinds of things, but it was paper data. And what did you find? The So the uh, single unattached males who did drop out of the workforce, did you, you find yeah. out why? Well, I did. And that really was my starting point. I went looking for those young unattached males, uh, particularly in Dauphin. 
And I've had a pretty fair idea of where I'd find them. And one of the first things I found, of course, was a nice little bubble in high school completion rates that was exactly consistent, con exactly contemporary to the basic income experiment. And when I managed to track down some of those people and to interview them, um, what they told me was exactly what I expected to hear. And that was um, that for young men in particular, they were under a fair amount of pressure in low-income families to become self-supporting as early as they could so that the family money could go to support younger brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, so essentially they turned 16, they went out and they got a job. And if you think about a town like Dauphin, it's an agriculturally dependent town in the middle of the prairie, the kinds of jobs they would get, jobs in agriculture, jobs in manufacturing. So right. it's a little bit interesting to sort of think back over the past 40 years and to realize um, the differences in opportunities that would be available to those boys who left school at 16 and got a job working on a farm. And the boys who managed to stay in school a little bit longer because their parents received income and uh, to graduate from high school, to go on in some cases to college or to university. So in the two cases, we see women uh, stay out of the workforce but for good reason, to look after their young children, which is a positive social benefit. And then we see young men stay out of the workforce to, to finish their education, which is also a positive social benefit. So uh, when you remove those two, uh, those two data points, uh, was there any measurable impact on the labor force otherwise? No, no, there really wasn't. And so we have good evidence from decades ago that this idea of a basic income, a negative income tax model at, at least, uh, can function successfully in providing a positive social benefit but avoiding a negative impact on our labor force. And do we have, you mentioned some negative in tax, income tax experiments in the United States, and we've obviously seen some more recent basic income experiments, obviously a, a shortened one here in Ontario, uh, a shortened one in fin Finland as well. Uh, can you speak a little bit to what other international yep. experience and does the international evidence coincide? Does it support that, that 70s experiment? I think, I think it does. I think it does. Um, one of the um, one of the things we saw with the Ontario experiment, even though it was uh, it was uh, stopped very, very soon, was the number of people who were using the stipend to register in community college courses. Um, you know, finish, finishing high school in Dauphin in the mid 70s is probably the equivalent of going to community college in Toronto in you know, 20, 2019. Um, it, the, Finnish, the Finnish experiment was not stopped early. It ran for the full two years it was planned. Um, and it was a little bit different in the sense that it began with um, long-term unemployed people. Right. And um, the idea behind that project was that if you give long-term unemployed people um, a basic income, they might actually work more. Um, so they weren't worried about people working less. They were hoping basic income would encourage them to work more. The preliminary results didn't bear that out. They weren't working more, but they weren't working less either. It didn't seem to make any difference compared to the control group. Um, when we tried this experiment, um, it, it, certainly in the other U.S. experiments and elsewhere in the world, in most cases, if the project is well designed, it has virtually no impact at all on employment. Um, if the project's not well designed, you can get threshold effects for particular groups. Right. But, um, Which is, but it really doesn't lead to widespread laziness or um, But what it does designers. do, and, and, and why I, so I, uh, we spoke, I think, for the first time when I had invited you as a guest at our All-Party Anti-Poverty Caucus, which I was, uh, because Senator Eagleton 
had retired, another big advocate for basic income. When he'd retired, uh, this organization that he started, I, I promised to take over. And so I wanted to commit some of the resources of that all-party caucus to discussing a basic income. And yet I had come to the idea not because of income per se or because of international experience, but because when I looked at Canadian programs in yeah. operation today, we see the federal government spend of a 330 or so billion dollar budget. We see $55 billion go to old age security and guaranteed income supplement in different ways operate on this negative income tax model. We see the Canada Child Benefit, which you referenced, $25 billion a year go to families with kids in a negative income tax style model with obviously varying thresholds as between the programs. Even the Canada Workers Benefit, which was formerly a working income tax benefit, a program that I was calling to be increased in the last parliament, it operates on the same principle. And it, it these programs work. We, we take great yeah. credit as a liberal government for seeing 300,000 kids out of poverty. Why are 300,000 kids out of poverty in comparison to 2015? It's because of an increase to the Canada Child Benefit. So these basic income supports, not. I, I'm glad to hear you say they don't have a measurable negative impact on the labor force, but my own experience in politics has been they have a, a very significant positive benefit on poverty reduction, one yeah. of the most important issues we can discuss, I think. Well, yeah, if I can go back to Dauphin for a minute, um, you know, that what drew me into that project was uh, the health effects. And when I was able to look at the health effects relative to a match control group, I found a very large reduction in hospitalization rates of about eight and a half percent. And one of the key components of that was hospitalization for um, mental health issues. Right. Similarly, there was a reduction in, in um, visits to family doctors, and the only thing that was statistically significant was that fewer people were going to family doctors complaining of depression and, and anxiety and family dysfunction and so on. So basic income has a huge impact um, on certainly on mental health, but also on physical health. And, um, you know, I, I, I think we anecdotally, we got the same reports out of the Ontario experiment. People's mental health improved. Um, in many cases, chronic conditions like diabetes were kept better under control with a basic income. So we see exactly the same things happening, the basic income improvements to people's health, improvements to people's well-being. Yeah, I, I, you know, my wife is a nutrition professor and chef at George Brown, and uh, she always speaks to the importance of eating well as a matter of preventative health care. But that's one element of the social determinants of health, as it were. <laughs> This idea of poverty reduction, I don't think we in politics, that's my three-year-old, by the way, he just loves being on this podcast, but um, I, I don't think in politics we speak enough about the importance of poverty reduction to health and yeah. that dollars up front, I mean, even if we want to talk about it even through just a completely fiscal responsibility lens and not as a matter of social mm -hmm. justice and, and a moral responsibility to our, our neighbors and fellow citizens, but if we just look at it as a matter of fiscal responsibility, dollars up front, there will be savings in the system down the road. That's right. Okay, so the other interesting aspect of this conversation, and this is the last piece I want to cover before we move to today's environment, but mm -hmm. I've always been interested in, in this idea of basic income because it also cuts across the political spectrum in very interesting yep. ways. And so yep. I don't know what your political leanings are as an individual, but I see People on the left call for an increase to a basic income. I obviously referenced the leader of the NDP, but I, 
I also see Hugh Siegel, a former Conservative Center, former Chief of Staff to a Conservative Prime Minister. He's been a, a long-standing advocate for a basic income. Even when you really uh, dredge the depths of libertarianism, you, you see Milton Friedman as an advocate for a negative income tax. Even if you go back to, and allow me to be a, uh, go back to political philosophy uh, with, uh, a little bit, which is a bit arcane maybe, but even Hayek, sort of the, the father yep. of libertarianism, has written to say that kind of libertarianism is justified yeah. only on the grounds that there is a minimum standard of living, i.e. a minimum, minimum income afforded to, to everyone. Uh, this yeah. idea of a, a broad social safety net. So it, it, obviously the iteration of that basic income changes and people have different arguments that, that they bring to bear as to what should be cut after, potentially if you're, if you're very conservative. But there is an interesting cross-party level of support for the idea in the first instance, which I, I always find fascinating. Um, and I'm sure you, you, you've worked with people from all parties as a result. I have, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. And so uh, even today, so in today's environment, we see, uh, I, I thought the juxtaposition interesting, just uh, CEOs out of Alberta with, who are mm -hmm. not typically accused of being members of the NDP, but you see them coincide to call for a universal basic income out of the current crisis, re real economic crisis and, and negative economic followed as a result of the pandemic. And so as this idea becomes real for people uh, who, you know, it, it's been real for any number of people on social assistance for a long time, but now it is real for people who never thought that they would be in this circumstance. And we yeah. saw today, I, I've said to my constituents who have called for a basic income, I've said, well, I think that these emergency support benefits could potentially work in a very similar fashion to a basic income, depending upon how they're rolled out. And then today, the prime minister spoke about rolling these two announced benefits, a care benefit and a support benefit into one, so that it will be the emergency response benefit, which if I've got the information right, it will be $2,000 a month for those who have lost income as a result of COVID-19 uh, for a four month period of time. I, I don't know, depending upon how this how long this pandemic uh, situation lasts, uh, so unclear at the moment, but for the foreseeable future, individuals in need will be able to apply, and if they apply, they receive $2,000 a month. That looks like a basic income to me. It does. <laughs> so, so do we have then, potentially through this emergency response benefit, uh, a basic income program for the foreseeable future that we could then maybe maintain and build on in, in the future? It's, it's interesting you ask that. I mean, the, the, my first reaction was, imagine if we had a basic income in place, um, that we actually had this right. thing set up so that if the pandemic had come along, we could actually make use of the machinery already in place and roll it out very, very quickly, as opposed to scrambling to put it in place now. Sure. Um, I, think, I think we'll see some interesting things coming as a consequence of this. Um, I think we also need to recognize that because it's being rolled out in very short order, there are probably things that we would want to change, um, that we right. would want to adjust a little bit going ahead. So it's an opportunity to learn a little bit about um, what works well, and what perhaps doesn't work so well, what some of the shortcomings of, our, uh, of the machinery of uh, delivering social benefits might be in Canada. But does it, I mean, for, I have to say in the last parliament, I pushed quite strongly in terms of, uh, you know, the time and energy one puts into different issues. I, I really spent a good deal of time focused on increasing 
the working income tax benefit thinking, okay, I'm going to increase uh -huh. this in some measurable way that will I, I push to make it automatic as well, which, which I, I think is a really important aspect of these benefits as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and I had in my mind this notion of piecemeal sort of, yeah. we can move the needle here, maybe we increase the Canada workers benefit sufficiently, maybe we roll it into some combined program with the GST tax credit and the Canada employment amount. And then we have a benefit for workers. We have a benefit for families with kids. We have a benefit for seniors and maybe in some future That's right. government that I'm not we a part of. rationalize it, together. But, bring it and together. Yet, and yet now we are in interesting times where mm -hmm. the ordinary rules of incremental progress in this uh, government I don't think apply. And so emergency measures are brought to bear. And it's interesting how quickly, and I think I think a, a testament to the responsiveness of the government in many ways, but also how, how I don't know what the right word is. I mean, what a moment in time, a horrible moment in time, but also a moment in time that we can potentially build on in a, in a really serious way. And, and you on Twitter uh, commented, a, on an article from Andrew Coyne, but you on Twitter mentioned out of World War II, we saw yeah. baby bonuses become a reality. And, and so in moments of crisis, yeah. we, we may well see longstanding social infrastructure that can stand the test of time. And, and maybe speak a little bit about that experience out of World War II and, and, and the parallels. Well, what I think is particularly interesting about the baby bonus is that um, family allowances were not first proposed at the end of World War II. I mean, they'd been introduced during the Great Depression and various other times, but they'd never been successful politically because there was always opposition on the grounds that if you give people a family allowance, they're going to stop working. They're going to work right. less. Right. Um, if you give people a family allowance, it's going to encourage alcoholism. It's going to encourage addictions and substance use. Um, if you give people a basic income, exactly the same sorts of things that like we hear. Popcorn and beer or whatever, exactly, yeah. exactly, right. exactly the same sorts of things we hear about basic income. But I think one of the things that I think is really interesting is that um, during periods of crisis, we get past all of that because the times are such that you really need to respond to the emergency exactly. situation. And we recognize that some of those fears were never very real to begin with. They don't have the consequences that we feared they would, and they they um, they actually lead to some very good uh, very good outcomes. So it's a nice uh, trial by fire, if you want, it's a nice opportunity to see what would happen. And um, as I said, also to learn to learn rolling those sorts of things out. And uh, the conversation I had with Universal Basic Income Works mm -hmm. organization, I mean, they're looking at, and, and a number of people have called for checks to everyone. And my yeah. hesitation, my hesitation there is I, I public record uh, member of parliament mm -hmm. makes a minimum of around 170 some odd thousand dollars. And then, you know, you, you earn more if you're a parliamentary secretary or a minister. And I don't want the federal government in a, in a crisis moment unless it's about getting dollars out the door and there's no other way of doing so quickly. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I don't I don't want the check. I, even if they tax it back, they're, they're, they're still going to keep money in my pocket in a way that I, I don't want. And so that's exactly right. Yeah. The negative income tax model becomes critical. And so there are still so in, in this case, the eligibility criteria are still a little bit to be determined in a way that mm -hmm. people who have lost income as a result of COVID-19, there may well be some honor system to this and that it, for the sake of expediency, money's out the door, but we, we expect that people who are still working are not going to be applying. Uh, so mm -hmm. some details to be determined, but 
that focus on what's your view on this idea of checks out the door to everyone versus a system in place that is a quick and fast eligibility. You apply, you get it. Mm-hmm. And then you get dollars at the door to the people in need. Well, the same upfront amount of money goes a lot further if you target it, right? Getting right. you can you can give much bigger stipends to the people who really need it if you're not also giving money to people like you and people like me who don't need it. Exactly. exactly. Um, it's true that you can make both systems work the same way by taxing it back at the end of the year, increasing the tax rate. But I think all we have to do is to remember the difficulty with OAS when we were sending checks to people and then expecting them to pay it back come April. People don't like that. <laughs> you know, this right. is not a politically popular thing to do. Right. So I, and I can think of a lot of reasons why a negative income tax is a preferable system than just sending checks out to everyone. The drawback, of course, is that we don't have a nice simple roster. You know, people move. Um, not everybody completes income tax forms. There's no list out there that we can easily um, target people. We really do have to rely on people applying, which yeah. does slow down the process a little bit. And I think that's a necessary trade-off. And I, and I wondered, I had this conversation with my staff, one of my staff members was saying, get dollars at the door to everyone, some people aren't yeah. going to apply. And, and I wondered, there's got to be a lot of overlap between people who are in a position where they don't know the program exists and they're not going to apply. That same person yep. probably also isn't filing their income taxes to begin with. So we're not That's really going to get it. We're not going to get a check out the door to that person probably anyway. So it, it's uh, I, my initial reaction was I think the, the government ultimately landed in a very good place to say yeah. a $2,000 stipend a month for people in need who have been devastated by this pandemic, be they self-employed individuals, be they people who have lost their jobs, but they're ineligible for EI. Having the EI system in place for people who qualify and they'll make a bit more, so that mm-hmm. makes sense. They paid into the system. But for people who don't qualify, having that basic income support in these very, very difficult times is, I think, the, the best possible policy solution Absolutely. we could have landed on. And uh, But I, I take your point about potential tweaks, and, and I would encourage if you have ideas about potential tweaks as you see this rolled out, uh, please please do be in touch. And hopefully this is a hopefully this is a policy measure that we're able to build on into the future. And someone having this conversation decades from now will say out of that crisis, we saw a major social policy shift and expanding of the social safety net in a way that we've we've reduced poverty in in for the in the most serious way in in generations so i uh maybe some good can come from uh from from such a horrible situation um thank you evelyn for all of your research thank you for joining me today and uh, please do be in touch as you have ideas going forward well thank you very much delighted to be here Mm -hmm.